Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Ephesians chapter 4. I'd like for us to just read in this fourth chapter, down through verse 16. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy. We'll talk about walk tonight. Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it that uh, is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies, according to the effectual working of, in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. We could read the whole chapter and it would be useful but for the purpose of our message tonight, we'll stop right there. Now then, we're going to talk about the Christian walk. In uh, verse 1 of the fourth chapter, it says that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. The word vocation is the calling wherewith you're called. Now then, this has to do with conduct and duty. In fact, chapters 4 through 6 have to do with that. Paul has in the previous chapters, 1 through 3, of Ephesians, uh, set forth the believer's position. And now he desires to set forth how each one should walk and walk worthy. Uh, If you notice the word, therefore, I therefore, that connects us with what's gone before in the first three chapters. And we know in the first three chapters he speaks of our salvation in God the Father and the Son, redemption through His blood, the seal of the Holy Spirit, and... uh, then in chapter 2, he speaks of our walk in times past as unbelievers. In verse 2, where in t- time past he walked according to the course of this world. In chapter 3, he shows us his prayer for the Ephesian church. And there's so much that needs to be uh, considered. And uh, in our last lesson, I believe Sunday evening, we talked about in verse 20 where it's, of the third chapter where he says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. So that brings us up to the fourth chapter in a just a gist of what we 
would find if we studied in detail the first three chapters. And, um, you know, you and I know that it's a fullness of study in the first three, first three chapters. But to get to our point tonight, we want to talk about the Christian walk. Actually, we could pick out the words walk and walked uh, and, and uh, deal with those in this book. But we're going to approach it in a little different way. If you would like seven walks here, uh, and just mark them down, Ephesians 2, verse 2, it says, Where in time past you walked, according to the course of this world. So write down Ephesians 2, 2, or just underline them as we go through. Ephesians 2, 10, that we should walk in good works created in Christ Jesus, which God had before ordained that we should walk in them. And, and uh, then the text that we had, Ephesians 4, 1, Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Ephesians 4.17, Walk not as other Gentiles walk. And then Ephesians 5 verse 2, Walk in love. Ephesians 5 verse 8, Walk as children of light. And then in Ephesians 5.15, Walk circumspectly. And you'll find that all of these, I'll repeat them. Ephesians 2.2, 2, 2.10, 4.1, 4.17, 5.2, 5.8, 5.15. And I have taught it in that fashion before, but tonight we will not teach that after that uh, kind of a, of a lesson. But we want to teach how Paul desires that each one is to walk worthy. And so look again at 4 verse 1. And the context that follows that we'll be dealing with somewhat. So 4 verse 1 he says, I therefore, notice, the prisoner of the Lord, Beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Now, on down through verse 16 that we read, we find the character of the Christian walk. That includes the whole thing. That would be our main topic. But then underneath that main topic, we have several thoughts. The character of the Christian walk is seen in these first 16 verses. But let's notice the Christian walk preserves unity. That's verses 1 through 6. The Christian walk preserves unity. Now, notice how this unity is preserved. Let's look at it. In verse 2, uh, well, verse 1, go back to the last part. You walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called with, here's how you're to walk, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, and so on and so forth. And we'll take it kind of verse by verse here on this particular point. Notice, what preserves unity? All lowliness. With all lowliness, if you're going to preserve this unity of the Spirit that it speaks of in verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That means perfect, genuine humility. We're talking about deep inside of us to not be a proud and boastful or arrogant or out-of-control person. Of course, a whole lot of things enter the picture but to be perfectly humble in our hearts. All lowliness, perfect, genuine humility. The Bible says, Peter says, be clothed with humility. Don't be like the fellow that says, have you ever heard that, that that great book that I wrote on humility? Well, that doesn't go over too well, does it? And then notice the next thing. It says meekness. Jesus said, I am meek and lowly in heart. So lowly would be would be humility, wouldn't it? And he said, I'm meek and lowly. So both of these characteristics were in Jesus when he said, take 
uh, my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And look, it says long-suffering. It says with long-suffering. That means to suffer long. It means gracious tolerance. It has to do with extreme patience. The Bible says you have need of patience that after you've done the will of God, you may inherit the promise. I quoted some of these scriptures in my mind the last two or three months. Up there in a little motel room, four walls looking at me and all the things that were happening. But anyway, uh, patience. And uh, you have to have patience. And then forbearing one another in love to bear with one another. And all of these things help to keep the unity of the Spirit, to bear with one another, forbearing one another in love. Look at that. You know, lack of unity is very destructive. Lack of unity in the church is very destructive. And we need unity in our homes. We need unity in our families. We need unity in the church because the church is a spiritual family. And the Bible teaches that we need this kind of unity to be blessed. We're talking about the Christian walk. And one responsibility of the Christian is to preserve this unity. Notice in verse 3, it says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It doesn't say endeavoring to make the unity of the Spirit. Jesus gave us the unity of the Spirit, and we're to keep it. It's our business to stay right and pray for the Holy Spirit's guidance and leadership. I want you to look at Psalm 133. Psalm 133, and I've quoted it several times. We'll just look at the whole chapter. There's three verses. Psalm 133. It says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is. Now look, for brethren to dwell together in unity. See that word? How good and how pleasant. It says, It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard. This speaks of his anointing. That went down to the skirts of his garments. Now look at this. As the dew of Hermon and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. Now look at the last statement. For there, when this condition exists, when this unity exists, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. So he says, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. So the first thing about the Christian walk is that we need all of these things. That we've spoken of. Now, hold your place where we're studying, back in Ephesians now. I want you to follow it on down. Endeavoring to keep the, verse 3, keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There will be peace. There will be peace. Now, look at verse 4. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And then it tells about the gifts, and we'll get into that in a moment. So we're talking about the spiritual, the basis of spiritual unity is sevenfold. Here we have one body. There's one church body. Paul says, ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. He said to the Corinthian church. They were members of that Corinthian church. The Ephesian church is a local body. You say, well, what about the mystical body? Well, we belong to Christ. We all are part of Him. But it says here is the head of the church. The Bible tells us that. And we know that in verse 15, but speaking the truth in love that we may grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Now, I don't believe, as some, that there's a dismembered body, that the head is 
separated from the body. You know, the head causes the body. We believe Christ is the head of the church. He's the head of the local church. And he's going he's the head of the he will be the head when it's united of a glorified church body that is yet being made up of all believers that will ultimately make up that uh, glorified church. But right now, Christ is the head of every local church. You say, well, does He have many heads? Well, no, He's the head of every local church. You know, I get amused at some people that do not believe in the local church aspect and they believe in this, uh, what they call a universal church. The, the two words are contradictory. Did you know that? A church is a called out assembly. And if it's universal, it will not be a church until all the members are called out and together and are assembled. And I'm a local church person. I believe in the local church. And from a local church, all the work of God is carried out. I'm reminded of something I see on television. These, this Eglin's Best, have you ever seen that on television? Advertising? And this lady holds up and said, this egg, now listen carefully to illustrate. This egg is the, is the best, proved to be the best tasting egg in America. Does that mean that everyone in America has tasted of that one egg? And then the next scene, you find the guy, and the man, and I think some of the family eating, says these, this egg, and then these eggs. These are the best tasting eggs I've ever eaten. Or these are good, you know. So it goes to, from the singular to the plural. But this one is like all the others because it represents the rest of them. And then it tells you to go buy them, right? Go buy all these, that kind of, that, that brand. Well, you see, that illustrates every local church should be an example and, and like other churches scattered all over the nation and all over the world with Christ the head. But anyway, I know that uh, there are many people that would be really on my case on what I've talked about just now because you have too many people believing in a, in a universal church. Now then, when you think of it, think of it this way. Do we say the American high school? Do we mean that there's just one high school where every high school student in America goes and attends at that one high school? Or is everyone... Does every one of them represent and look like and have a similarity to the others? So we're talking about churches in a different sense of the word. Jesus gives us the last word. And by the way, we'll be in Revelation pretty quick. And he says the church at Ephesus. Under the church of Ephesus, right. He says that's a church. He says the church of Smyrna, write this message. And he gives a message to seven different churches. Say, so why did he take, didn't he take more than seven? There were... A lot more than seven. These were kind of representative of all the others. These were within a hundred miles area in Asia Minor. And we'll get into that Sunday. So just leave it for now. But what I want you to see is that Jesus gives us the last word. And he speaks of local congregations. And he speaks of it as a church. Now then, it says there's one body and one spirit. What about one spirit? The Holy Spirit is what it's talking about here. The Holy Spirit, we're begotten by the Holy Spirit. We're to be led by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 verse 14 says, Many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So they're children of God. They belong to God. 
There's one hope. Look at this. One hope. You're called into one hope. The hope of His calling. The Bible says in 1.18 that we may know what is the hope of His calling. It's a living hope. Uh, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy, listen, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I believe that's 1 Peter 1 verse 3. It says, He's begotten us again unto a living or lively hope. And we're begotten. So this uh, is your call into one hope of your calling. And then there's one Lord. Who is that? The Lord Jesus Christ. That's who that is. Savior and Lord. He's spoken of. And it says one faith. Only one system of truth. The Bible, Jude says we're to contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. So it's all the body of truth. The, all the system of truth. All of God's Word. We, we follow uh, the Bible as the final rule of our what? Faith and practice. We're talking about the practice tonight because we're talking about the Christian walk. But it's, it's through this one faith, this one system of truth that we find not only what we believe, but how we live. The first three chapters of Ephesians were the doctrinal aspect of it. And the last uh, chapters here talk about the conduct and the duty. And, of course, chapter 6 has to do with our warfare. we get into that one if we progress along in this lesson on, on the Wednesday evenings and Sunday evenings. We won't have it this Sunday evening, but I don't think I'll halfway get through with it tonight, so we'll pick it up in our next Wednesday uh, lesson. But anyway, there's so much here that we don't want to pass over uh, too uh, quickly. But I want you to notice, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Now, there's some, some that uh, would controvert this and say that's Holy Spirit baptism. But it's water baptism that's referred to here because it's after you have professed one faith uh, by the hope of your calling, your call to the Lord Jesus Christ to believe on Him, and you have this one faith, you're to follow Him in the one baptism, the water baptism. And the water baptism is what's left for the church to, to do. Now, I know there's some that would argue about this, and they're good theologians. But anyway, I just, old cornbread and beans type of guy, and I just take it as I believe it says it here. And uh, one baptism. What baptism did Jesus leave with the church? He said, go ye into all the world and what? Make disciples. And he says, those that are made disciples by what? The one faith in the one Lord, the one Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior. He says, baptize them. And the Bible teaches that that's a picture of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection in Romans chapter 6. And we won't have time to go in and preach the whole sermon on baptism, but I just want you to see that I believe it is baptism, and it's a Christian baptism that we're to participate in. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Amen. So the Trinity is recognized here. By the way, is not the Trinity recognized in Christ's baptism? The voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove lighted upon Him, bearing witness. And you have the Trinity there. You have the Trinity uh, when Jesus said to go and, and preach the gospel. Matthew 28, He said, Go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations. He says, Baptizing them in the name of what? In the name of the Father. And he didn't say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. All three. They're pointed out individually. 
but they're a trinity. Someone says, well, the word trinity is not found in the Bible. The word rapture is not found in the Bible. There's a lot of words not found in the Bible, but the truth of the rapture is in the Bible. The truth of the trinity is in the Bible. And so we believe in the divine trinity. We believe God, Father of all, who is above all. There's one Lord here, Jesus Christ. In verse 4, is one spirit. So you have all three mentioned in this passage of Scripture. It's recognized, actively engaged in forming this unity that we're talking about. So, the Christian walk is to preserve, not to make, but to preserve unity. And by the way, the more we walk as Christians, the more unified we'll be in the things of God. We cannot be separated as God's people from each other. We can be separated from the world, and well, we should be. That's one of our points uh, later on in the message. But we are to be together in the things of God, not separated. So we're to promote unity. The Christian walk, the second point under that main heading, by the way, if you're outlining this, the main thing was the character of the Christian walk. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. And then the Christian walk preserves unity. 1 through 6. Now then, the next section is 7 through 16. The Christian walk promotes usefulness. It promotes usefulness. Let's think of it. To everyone is given. Look at verse 7. It says, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. On down in verse 11, he says, uh, He gave some apostles and some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some pastors and teachers. Notice that these others are separated. Apostles are separate. Prophets separated. Evangelists separate. And then he says pastors and teachers. The same office for pastors and teachers. Pastors to be a teacher and a teacher is to be a pastor. They're to be the same. They're to both. If, a, if you have a pastor, he's supposed to be a teacher of the Word of God. To everyone is given grace. The gifts are given by... Uh, by measure, they're given to particular people. And by the way, we're not talking about the apostolic gifts. We're talking about for the church to continue. The apostolic gifts were given to the apostles. They had gifts that you and I do not have today. Some people believe in apostolic succession, but there is no such thing. The days of the apostles are gone. That's past. So when one says, I'm an apostle today, well, maybe... You're one sent in that respect, but you're not one of the apostles as such. Because they had special qualifications. They had seen the Lord. And there was other, uh, there are many things that we won't go into, but I will show you that they had special gifts or signs. Look in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. And notice what it says here. Paul says, the gifts of an apostle he possessed. 12, verse 12. He says, Truly the signs of an apostle. Signs were wonders that they could perform, or miracles. The signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So, in verse 11 he says, I am become a fool in glory, and ye have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended of you, for in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. Truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So, Paul possessed those signs of an apostle. Uh, Acts, I believe it's chapter 5. Let's look and see if we can find it. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. 
And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. What? And by the hands of the apostles there were apostolic signs. But then what about some gifts, uh, abilities uh, uh, that God has bestowed upon you and I? Not as apostolic gifts, but gifts that we're to use in serving God. Never to the same degree that you have the apostolic signs. They went forth bearing witness to the Word of God. And God bore witness to their ministry by the signs and apostleship, uh, I mean, signs that He gave the apostles. So notice, in, there's two things I'll refer to. First of all, look in our text, and down in verse uh, 11. You have Ephesians 4, verse 11. Hold your place there. It says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now then, let's look at it. Apostles were a special chosen group, and they, there is no succession to the apostles. The New Testament prophets, neither apostles or prophets today. In the same sense that you find them in the book of Acts and New Testament apostles and prophets. The evangelist is a bearer of good news. Actually, he's a missionary. He's a preacher. That's what they did. They went from... Now, I know a lot of people... You know, if you were to go to the description of evangelists today, you might find a lot of different uh, ideas about evangelism. But the evangelist is basically... A missionary goes forth to evangelize. That's what he is. And uh, if you're looking... By the way, there's only two other places that you find evangelists in the New Testament. Did you know that? Only two other places. And Timothy was told in his ministry to do the work of an evangelist, to evangelize. And that's in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. But look in Acts chapter 21 and verse 8. It says, I believe it says Philip the evangelist. Acts 21 and verse 8. And if you remember what Philip did, it says in the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. The same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. But now, what did Philip himself do? If you turn back to uh, Acts chapter 8, what was Philip doing? Acts chapter 8, verse 5. He was called an evangelist, wasn't he? Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, that's verse 5, and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did, and so on and so forth. And on down it tells in verse 12, But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. They believed, and they were baptized, both uh, men and women. All right, now let's turn over, uh, turn down to verse 26. It says, And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem to Gaza. He called him to go down, which is desert, a desert road. And he rose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority, under uh, Candace, Queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasures, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, and uh, read Esaias the prophet. 
Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. The Holy Spirit was leading him. And Philip ran thither. Uh, he, was in a, he was anxious to do what God wanted him to do. And heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest what thou readest? So he's doing the work of an evangelist. It says, Philip the evangelist. And he said, How can I accept some man should guide me? And he desired Philip to come up and sit with him. The place of the Scripture which he read is this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And like a lamb dumb before his shear, so he opened not his mouth. He was reading from the book of Isaiah. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall desire declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And he preached Christ from the book of Isaiah chapter 53. And as they went on their way, they came to a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here's water. I'm a believer. I believe. Uh, what doth hinder me to be baptized? Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He believed the message that Philip preached to him. He believed that he was that lamb that was slain, the innocent victim. As John said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And your faith and mine should be the same in the Lamb that was slain for our salvation. And then it says, And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went, both, they went down both into the water. So that means they got down into the water. How deep it was, we don't know. Both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. That means that when they got down in the water, he put him under the water. Whether he went straight down or backward or forward or however, he went into the water. And he was immersed in the water. Because that's what baptism means. It doesn't mean sprinkle. It doesn't mean pour water on his head. It means to go into the water. It means to be covered with the water. It says he went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch. And then if... If there was not enough water by them going down into the water, what would be the purpose of going down into the water? He could just reach down and get the water and sprinkle some on his head. Why, why even go into the water if baptism was some other mode? Both Philip and the eunuch, he baptized him. When this, and when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord called away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found in Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. So Philip is what? An evangelist, wasn't he? And he went from place to place preaching the word. Evangelist now goes to a certain church and is supposed to hold a revival. A missionary is an evangelist. Some of you may disagree with me, but that's what it is. You look at the words and you look at the context and you look at what they do. What did Philip do? Did he go to some local church and hold a revival meeting? Not really. Timothy was pastor of a church. And Paul told him to do the work of an evangelist. In other words, to go out from that church and do that kind of work. Reach new people. Be a missionary in his own community and roundabout area. See, missions is just as much next door as it is over in India or China. It's all God's work of sending out and preaching the gospel around the world. It's all a part of it. So, if you want that scripture, look in Second Timothy, if you will. And by the way, as I said, it's the only other place outside of that one that we've been studying where the word evangelist is, is mentioned. It's in Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5. Paul tells Timothy, But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, 
Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. And you and I as pastors or as a church should be evangelistic in our outreach. But do the work of an evangelist. Alright? Now then, we're talking about the walk of the Christian. And we said it's to be a useful walk. It's to promote usefulness. And so we've talked about apostles. They were special chosen people for the time of the apostolic ministry, New Testament prophets, evangelists, a bearer of good news of the gospel, a preacher as well as those that go out on the mission field. They're preachers too, aren't they? And then pastors and teachers. In the context of our scripture, let's look at it. Ephesians 4.11, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Pastors and teachers. We said that the pastor is to be a teacher. He is to be a ruler, a feeder of the flock. The ruler is not one that dictates. He's one that guides. In fact, the word rule is that bear the rule over you is spoken of in the Bible. Or the guide. I think, let's see if I can find something in Hebrews. Maybe we can find a reference. Hebrews chapter... Okay, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Look at it. Hebrews 13, verse 17. It says, Obey them that have the rule over you. And the word rule means the guide. It's to guide you. Obey them as they guide you. And submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give an account, give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. The rule there means actually the guide. 1 Peter chapter 5. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Where Peter's talking about overseers. Let's read verse 1. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder. Now look. And a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you. Now look. Taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So what are these elders to do? These preachers, these bishops, these overseers? What are they to do? They're to feed the flock of God. They are to take the oversight or the guide, the rule. And they're to do it willingly, not by constraint. And they're not to do it for the sake of... of Filthy lucre, that is merely for to be a hireling or to get money, but what? But of ready mind. Do it with money or without money. God has been good to us as a preacher in these last days, but it was not always so. And thank God for you as a church that have supported us in the ministry. Very generous and loving and caring church. And I want to do my part in taking the guide and the rule and the oversight because you've done your part. And I trust after 45 years, I've done my part somewhat. I've tried to at least. And I know that I've fallen short in many ways because none of us are perfect. But I'll guarantee you, God has blessed the church and He's blessed you and He's certainly blessed us. 
we go back some day and I'll tell you a little bit of the history of this church. Maybe the last Sunday I might just bring up two or three things. Because that's what we're going to do, isn't it? The last Sunday of the month, we're going to have our church dinner. And as of February 1st this year, it'll be 45 years ago that my wife and I and two little kids started the first service in an old building up in the middle of Riddosa next to all the saloons. And it was a broken down building. Board and bat. You know what board and bat building is? Just a board with a bat over the crack. And there's no studs. That holds up the wall because they're very thick boards. Just old thick rough one by twelves. And then the air comes in through everything. That's the kind of building it was. And did you know in those days there was a board sidewalk in front of the church? board sidewalks and all of them were rotted out and you go along people go along the street to Rio Dosa and they'd step down through those holes and they'd dodge that and go out in the street of such street as we had to keep from falling breaking their leg in the, in the sidewalk no sidewalks no concrete so I tore all that out and I run a I run a concrete sidewalk there well anyway that is that off the subject I guess but uh, someday I'll tell you about it but anyway, Clint's good to have you. Uh, so we're talking about the walk of the Christian. And he's to continue the pastors and teachers, the ruler, the one that feeds the flock, the leader, the guide. The purpose is for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. And notice what it says. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And it says, look, till we all come in the unity of the faith. So that means our work is not done till the Lord comes. And the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're not going to be there until, as we said in Jude 24, He presented us faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. And by the way, we just got one one, uh, main point of our message. The Christian character of the Christian walk, we said it was to preserve unity and it's to promote usefulness. And the next section we'll take up in our lesson will be the Christian is to walk consistently. We'll talk about the consistency, consistency of the Christian walk. So our time has gone and passed.